We've always understood that being a police officer can be difficult, but we're beginning to see an urgent warning sign. Police suicides are on the rise. Just how bad is the problem? Why is it happening? And what can be done to stop it? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your total justice geek and your personal guide to our chaotic criminal justice system. And still so incredibly fortunate to have that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And before we get into the episode, we want you to become a member and a supporter of what we do here on Criminal Injustice. Go to our Patreon link at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash criminal injustice, where you can join and get access to extra content like our special series on the criminal justice platforms of the 2020 candidates for president and so much more. First hundred people to join get a signed copy of my book, Failed Evidence, Why Law Enforcement Resists Science. So let me start this episode with some numbers. Between July 2018 and July 2019 in Chicago, seven suicides. In a space of three weeks in New York City, four suicides. A suicide is a terrible problem in our society. It's a leading cause of death. But what made these suicide clusters unusual was not how these people killed themselves, and it was not the result of the opioid epidemic or of long-term unemployment or one of our many other social problems. It was that all of them, and many more in the same period, they were all police officers. Seven suicides by Chicago Police Department officers in one year. In three of them, the officers were actually on duty, on department property, when this happened. And like I said, this seems to be a growing problem. According to the organization Blue Help, and HELPS here stands for Help, Educate, Lead, and Prevent, we'll put up a link to that organization on our website, there were 167 officer suicides in 2018. That's more than all the officers who died in the line of duty in the United States in the same year. In 2019, as of September 30, that's with three months to go in the year, there are already 163 police suicides. Here's some audio, and it's not from Chicago or New York, but from the middle of the country in Kansas City. An officer committed suicide there, and the voice you will hear from a report on KSHB television is a Kansas City Fraternal Order of Police official in the wake of that suicide. Listen. Uh, What has to be done? Officers are committing suicide. Officers are leaving because they have stress-related issues. We have officers that, that have been involved in critical incidents and can't come back to work. I mean, really, what else has to be done before we make a decision that this is going to be serious for us? So what are we looking at? Do we truly have a spike or a surge in this terrible activity? Is this, as the FOP person said, a kind of new normal? And is there anything, any kind of change in policing or in support structures for officers or anything that can be done to address this? Our guest today is a veteran police officer and administrator in one of the nation's biggest and best-known police departments. And with her retirement, she's focused on this very set of problems. Sandy Jo MacArthur has had a 35-year career with the Los Angeles Police Department in the full scope of police roles, from patrol to undercover to vice. She retired in 2015 as assistant chief with responsibility for a budget of over a billion dollars and for departmental technology, training, use of force and tactics and personnel, as well as oversight of all the department employee assistance and wellness programs and the behavioral science unit and its 16 psychologists. She now works as the main mental health training coordinator for all of Los Angeles County law enforcement. Sandy Jo MacArthur, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Hi, David. It's good to be here. And I want to give a special thanks as we start our conversation to Zoe Rusick of the Chicago Crime Lab for connecting us and helping us put this particular show together. So let's start way before the current 
problems uh, begin to show themselves. Uh, we all know that being a police officer, as I said in the beginning of the episode, it's always been a high-stress, difficult job. Um, you're dealing with difficult people, with criminals who do not respect the law, with people who are sometimes experiencing the worst day they've ever had, maybe as a crime victim or an accident victim. Take us back to when you came into policing. Uh, in the face of that kind of stress, what was, what was the expectation back then? How were officers supposed to deal with those sorts of things when they happened? Well, I've been in policing, as you said, a long time. So I, going back to 1980, because it sort of gives the audience a, a focal point, uh, policing was much simpler than it is today. Uh, and it, it was still problematic in terms of the types of trauma. And as you say, you couldn't say it any better than seeing people on their worst day. Uh, but the expectations of officers back then were basically to go out there to maintain peace, um, make arrests, you know, when crimes occurred. And it was like that, literally that simple in terms of the mindset. Today, what we're seeing is officers are actually expected to deal with so many um, additional societal issues, and they're not necessarily recruited under that type of a large umbrella. They're still recruited uh, in terms of law, order, community. They do recruit based on community-mindedness and things like that. But until you really get get out there out of the academy, get onto the streets, you have no idea the breadth and depth of experiences you're going to encounter every single day. Now, I've heard that from other police. I mean, we just ask a lot of our police officers in terms of the scope of the issues we ask them to handle. Yeah. When you look at, just just take a look at this country's um, homelessness problem alone. It has, that has grown exponentially. And today's homeless are much different than the homeless that I dealt with in the early 80s and even into the early 90s. We're seeing people out there with extreme mental illness that we're dealing with. We're seeing people out there that are homeless for the first time in their life, in their, their you know, 40s, 30s, and 40s. We're seeing elderly who are homeless. So, again, we're, we're really stepping into so much of what we used to see traditionally as the social worker or the psychologist role, and we're seeing officers have to manage these types of encounters every day. So when you started, if you were to have a very difficult day or a catastrophic incident of some kind or, or witness something really terrible um, and you felt lots of stress, uh, maybe it was that one incident or maybe accumulation of, of stresses, uh, what, would, what would police officers do? I mean, what was the expectation? What was available? Well, back when I came on, there were actually some... Um, because our department, I was working, as you said, with LAPD, we actually did have some psychologists already on staff, which was pretty progressive in the time. However, we, as a, as a culture in policing, we weren't really keen on asking for help, even if we thought we needed it. We sort of were under the uh, thought process of, um, hey, we're tough. We all were screened to come on the job. We go through some really rigorous training. And we basically, when something significant happens, some sort of trauma, experiencing something with a pretty gruesome crime scene, which was very common in the 80s, uh, you were supposed to sort of suck it up and move on. We did a fairly decent job when we lost an officer in the line of duty uh, with our psychs would come in and they'd you know, be hanging out with us in the sure. divisions and things mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. But the general cumulative trauma uh, we as a culture thought, hey, you know what? This is what we came on the job to do. We just got to suck it up and do it. So if an officer said, hey, I need help or what, you know, can somebody do something for me or went to one of the psychologists, would that perhaps or was it just thought that perhaps it would uh, impact the person's career in a negative way? Well, yeah, there's there's a couple of things when you're dealing with the mindset, especially back then and even today a little bit. I say like there's basically three big issues that I, I always try to talk to officers today about. One is shame. Um, we would bring, we there was a lot of self-shaming that would go on if we weren't, quote, strong enough to handle the situation. There was a lot of stigma about going and getting assistance because, and stigma is different than shame. Stigma is what are going to pe- people going to think about me when I go? Are they going right. to think I'm weak? 
And then the third is fear. There's a lot of misconceptions about if you do go to help, uh, to get help, are you know, is the whole department going to find out about it? Will I even be able to keep my job? Will I be able to carry a weapon anymore, which is, you know, part and parcel to the job? Sure, you are so part of the identity, yeah. Yeah, it's part of your identity, but it's also what we have to do to go. If I can't carry a weapon, I can't be a police officer. So we could actually, the fear was if I go, I try to get help, I may not be able to carry a weapon anymore, i.e. I lose my career. So those are the three biggies that, uh, from my perspective, shame, stigma, and fear that we had to really work towards. And we're still working on them today. Interesting. So that was the picture then, and you say to some extent still now. Fast forward, if you could, to, I don't know, take it five, ten years ago. um, uh, In that range, uh, there have been police suicides forever, right? I mean, this isn't a brand new problem. What would the frequency of this terrible thing be if we went back, say, five, six, seven years? Um, You know, let me take it back just a little bit further than that. I take it, it sounds crazy, to the turn of the century. Um, In the 90s, actually even the 80s, the 90s, um, and even the early 2000s, uh, when you looked at suicide rates amongst police officers, first it was hard to find Departments wouldn't really report it. There's no report, one main reporting entity at a federal level. So you had to basically kind of call around, know what you were doing with your own department and things like that. But in that time frame, what we did know is that the suicide rate amongst officers, at least in the departments you were able to get information from, was lower than the general population rate. And there was a lot of reason for this. Um, we screen. Everybody goes through psychological screening, both uh, uh, written testing and then, you know, in-person testing and, and discussion and stuff like that. So what we look for, because I had recruiting also under my realm, what we look for is people who have good coping skills, people who don't turn to alcohol, let's say, um, to, to go to sleep at night. You know, so, we, so we're selecting people with good coping skills. We're still doing that today, which is what is surprising when you go back about eight to ten years, you started to see us as a, a as a group, police start to inch up, and we were becoming instead of having a lower rate, we were about even with the general population. And then in the last six to seven years, we started to climb and were higher than the general population. And that is for me very concerning because we're still doing the same type of. Uh, background uh, investigations. We're still doing the same time of psychological testing, and we're still giving them very good skills when they go through the academy training. So you have to start to say to yourself, what is going on? Why are our officers experiencing such um, an increase? And we're, we're seeing a much higher increase than the general population, which should be of concern to everybody. Yeah, so we move from lower than the rest of the population to even with it, and then the last five to six, surpassing it. Is there something in your mind, is there one thing, is it a cluster of things that account for this? Um, uh, Is it uh, the job changing so much? Uh, Is it the way that people think of themselves? What do you attribute it to? Well, I think there's actually a couple of different things. I don't think you can ever say there's just one contributing factor. Sure, it's a cluster, yeah. Yeah, it really is. And so what we see happening in the last six to seven years, actually when you go back to like when we had our recession in 2009, 2010, it really hit 11, 12, 13, you, you started seeing us inch into the recession, and it was full bore by at least 2013, right? Well, as you guys, everybody knows who's listening, recessions hit just about every um, area in our population. So recession actually hits law enforcement officers as well, personally. For the first time in in, um, my career, my 35 years, I had seen officers losing their homes, not being able to afford to keep their homes and things like that. So, so the recession, I think, actually played a little bit of a role. The other thing that you Interesting. Started, yeah, I wouldn't have thought that. Well, and you know, a lot of people don't. We would start to see people applying to be police officers, and this was across the country because I would be going to the International Associations of Chiefs of Police Conferences and such. Officers or candidates uh, were having horrible, a horrible time having any type of job, 
so that they couldn't even show what we like to see is some sort of job um, performance so that we know that they can come get, you know, get up in the morning, come to work. Sure. Stability. Yeah. Stability. Right. And we were seeing individuals who were not able to even find jobs that had college degrees, you know, and so you started seeing this impacting us. So that's something a lot of individuals don't know. So I always say, take the normal stressors of the world in, in that time frame. And then we started to have an, ad, an incredible advancement of technology that is really cool stuff, awesome, helps us do our jobs better, helps the communities, you know, um, helps with transparency. But with every advancement, there are unintended consequences. Sure. And so I'm not, and I'm not here to say, I think uh, actually like the body-worn camera videos mm-hmm. and things like that have t- helped tremendously. When officers, and there, this has happened all along, we, we have a small percentage of officers who really do screw up. And then we have a large percentage of officers who are accused of screwing up when in reality the videos and things like that prove that they did their job. But what happens is it takes us to a totally different micromanagement level that takes time to, one, adjust to, and two, um, with the advent of social media, unfortunately, a lot of the videos that um, people have can be released and modified. And we've seen that lots of different times with mm-hmm. in politics where people will take statements and then modify them to make them look you know, different, right. positive or negative. Mm-hmm. And so you have a lot of different dynamics. And I say, I say it like this. We have a 747 flying from um, Chicago to New York, and we are literally changing out the interior of it while we're in flight. We don't get to stop, go to the hangar, work yes. through things. Mm-hmm. We have to adjust in the moment, and sometimes it's literally within uh, you know, hours or days of things happening. So we're advancing with the technology to improve um, transparency you know, to help both our communities better understand and, um, uh, and officers held accountable and all those types of things without being able to really understand what some of the unintended consequences are going to be of that. And then how did you deal with some of those different consequences? So what do you do when somebody takes video and then chops it all up and makes it look beautiful and puts it out there and the department doesn't even get an opportunity to explain you know, put it in context and put their, their, their version, for lack of a better word, out. So you've got a lot of different things that, that are happening during this time frame you're talking about. Um, and then the whole issue of police accountability. We see uh-huh. that, uh, we see that uh, you know, we saw it after Rodney King, for example. Mm-hmm. A lot of um, interest in improving and professionalizing policing and making sure we have transparency. So we've seen these surges before. But I don't think we've seen it. I say the surge is on steroids right now. And I think that adds to the stress level. I think there's no doubt that you're right about that. The stress of greater accountability and maybe public skepticism. Uh, and, you know, this is a very difficult question to ask, and I, I want to do it in the best way I can. But I can imagine that there would be some people listening who might say that, you know, it's the way that police have always done this job, the aggressiveness, the use of force, the ways that they have not really cared about the effect of their interactions on the public. Now the public is strongly rejecting those things and not standing for it anymore. And so there's a real feeling that the job uh, doesn't support them and that people are attacking them. Uh, and that this has increased the stress level. Does that make sense? Does that fit in at all? Well, I absolutely think it fits in. Um, I think what what oftentimes happens when people do not come together and talk, and one side or both sides um, sort of end up becoming defensive and pointing fingers, it creates uh, a conflict that um, can sometimes, what I don't want to say get out of control, but where pretty soon everybody's pointing fingers at each other and no one's really getting down to sitting down and working through, you know, kind of a a traditional conflict model, right? So, um, for example, most of our officers that, you know, I'm I'm fortunate. I get to stay, I've been staying since retirement, staying in the realm of teaching and wellness and things like that. So I get to talk to officers, and, and, and I wish 
more departments would ensure that dialogue happens between officers and the communities they serve. Because what I find working with officers in the, in the conflict realm and then working with the communities and trying to bring them together, both actually want the same. <laughs> both actually want the yes. same outcome. Mm-hmm. But sometimes conflict, as you know, just in general with conflict, as, a, as an attorney, you understand that whole component of it. We can get very polarized and therein lies a huge problem. When we're polarized, we're not, we're not list, looking or listening for how we can resolve this together. We're looking and listening for how we can win the fight, right. the argument. And transparency, I think most officers, and again, I'm generalizing, but most officers understand accountability and understand how important transparency is. And because most officers do their job well, um, they, they're okay with it, but they don't understand where it's going. And um, they also, just a side note, officers that I talk to don't want the problem officers, that small percentage of officers who do terribly in, inappropriate things, they, don't, they tarnish the badge. So, again, we have the same basic goal as our community and our po- politicians want in terms of, um, you know, having a good police department that can be attentive to their needs, the warrior mentality kind of policing that we still see happening here and there. A lot of that is driven, I think, by the us versus them mentality. And uh, officers start to feel like this is everybody's against me. And so my job is to go out there and deal with just the criminal component. When all along for for hundreds of years now, the community is all, you know, community peace and community safety is our primary That's component. the job, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And people come on the job understanding it, but they get thrown into sometimes ill-prepared, and sometimes they get thrown into something just timing-wise, and it's easy to fall into the us versus them mentality. And if people only are an idea and you don't really understand and an learn to get yeah. to know people, mm-hmm. the us versus them mentality could be very strong. And I think that I see that on both sides because when I do bring work on some of the um, conflict management stuff and bring the community together with the police, it's amazing what we can accomplish. Yes. I've, I've been in the same position as being, bringing people together across that great divide. And you're right. Uh, when people are not interested in talking, they're interested in either point scoring or, or figuring out a way to get even or things like that, or they have just a great deal of grievance from past mistreatment, it becomes very hard to have anything like a real conversation. And that, of course, raises the stress levels for everybody. Go ahead, please. I'm sorry. I just want to say one thing, Mm because you raised something I think is really critically important, and I try to get officers to understand this. Um, Past abuses, and we know there's lots of that out there. We've seen it historically in policing. Um, We're dealing with generations of individuals who live in certain parts of our cities that are actually still stuck in their trauma from what what experience their um, parents or their grandparents had. And I think we got to look at it from a cumulative trauma aspect of it or a complex trauma aspect of it as well to better understand how we can help improve. And so you get a young officer who goes out there wanting to do all the right things, but he's sort of caught up in this historical component Absolutely. that he or she has no idea mm-hmm. what this, what the, um, you know, th- this particular neighborhood has experienced for the last 45 years or even 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We had a wonderful guest on here. Um, he was the, the chief of police uh, in a small town in Georgia, LaGrange, Georgia. Uh, and I'm blanking on his name. I apologize for that. Uh, Lou Deckmark, excuse me. He, and he okay. became the head of the IACP shortly after we talked yeah. to him. And uh, he talked about how he had decided to bring his police department through an apology process, a reckoning process with the community because they they had done some very, very bad things, uh, you know, back in the 40s. I mean, 70 years ago, they had allowed a lynching to take place in the town. And, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, you, you got to have officers, even yourself, weren't even born 
Uh, why apologize for something uh, back that far? And what he said was, look, the people remember. It's generational, and it's that patch. It's that uniform that did it, and you're still wearing that uniform and that patch. That might as well have been you. And I thought that was extremely insightful. Very difficult thing to do. Uh, yeah. uh, but very insightful for him to understand the other side's perspective. At that you're talking about really bringing the empathetic component back into policing, which I think is critical to resolve these types of long-standing um, conflicts. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break here. We're talking with Sandy Jo MacArthur, 35-year veteran of the LAPD. She now does work in L.A. County on officer mental health and wellness. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Eyewitness testimony, confessions, fingerprints, and forensics, all tools police and prosecutors rely on to put people in jail. But the research says these methods are far less reliable than we've been led to believe. In his 2012 book, Failed Evidence, Why Law Enforcement Resists Science, David Harris explores the myths and misconceptions surrounding high-tech policing and explains why they persist. To get your free copy of the book, become a Criminal Injustice member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice, or just look for the Become a Patron button on our website at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24-7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed, and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus, with Simply Safe, there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe, S I M P L I S-A-F-E, that's simplysafe.com slash injustice. Hi everyone, David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice, and my guest is Sandy Jo MacArthur. She is a former assistant chief of police in Los Angeles for the LAPD. She was 35 years in that department, and she now works on issues of mental health and wellness for all law enforcement in L.A. County, and she's done some national-scale work on this set of issues, too. So, Ms. MacArthur, I'd like to ask you, uh, I mentioned uh, Zoe Russick and the Crime Lab right up front when we brought you on. The Chicago Crime Lab uh, in, in, in Chicago is not actually a crime lab like you see on TV or a medical examiner's lab. It's at the University of Chicago. It studies crime and policing. Uh, and they've been doing this for many, many years. And Ms. Russick and the Crime Lab were important players in convening a meeting in Chicago after these uh, seven uh, suicides in a year uh, with some of them taking place right literally in front of police stations. I mean, if, you, if that's not a message, I don't know what is. Uh, and you were a participant in that whole set of conversations. Uh, what was the impetus for the conference? How did it come together? Uh, what was the thing designed to do? Well, the, I'll start with the last question first. 
the the conference was designed to bring a spotlight on the problem, not just in Chicago, but nationally on the issue of officer wellness uh, and specifically on depression, suicide, things like that. Because again, as we talked about in the first part of the hour, um, we have a tendency to sort of think, well, you know, they're officers, they're kind of robots, and they go out there and do their job, and we don't always pay attention to how they're impacted by it. So that was the first part, is to really bring the spotlight on the problem and also then to focus on what we're doing in Chicago. And I'm fortunate enough to work with Zoe and the Crime Lab on several different projects that are in support of improving uh, police and community interactions in Chicago. So I, I, um, I was asked, I, I was on several different um, committees that uh, the Crime Lab had put together, and then I was asked to be part uh, of this two-day workshop, and actually they asked me if I had moderated, which was a cool thing as well, uh-huh. because they know I'm really committed to officer wellness, I, and this is what my whole, my, what I say is my philosophy, is if officers are well, psychologically and physically, they're going to go out and do a much better job, and our community, our communities will only improve as a result, and right. our communities can get well as well, right. get, psychologically. Yeah, that's right. They'll get the benefits, too. Mm-hmm. You know, this is so interesting. It's the first conversation we've had on criminal injustice about this particular subject, and it's worth noting that the Chicago police, of course, have been through some very, very difficult times over the last five to six years, even more so than a lot of other departments. Yes. There was the reckoning with the old torture scandal uh, from years ago. Uh, there was the reckoning with the Laquan McDonald shooting that was caught on video and the video being covered up and then the video coming out and a murder trial. There have been numerous cases of police officers uh, having found to be engaged in some kind of corruption. I mean, the numbers are small, but the impact has been substantial on the department itself. And uh, there's also this enormous spike in violence and murder uh, in Chicago uh, which nobody seems to be able to have a final answer for, though things are better in the last two years than they were before that. Um, and because of this, of course, the federal government first came in and did a, uh, a deep study of the department and its problems. Um, and in the end, uh, the department and the city uh, made an agreement with the Illinois Attorney General's office to uh, um, uh, restructure very basic aspects of the department. And part of that agreement, this is where I was going, uh, has been to improve certain aspects of officer wellness and mental health by hiring more psychologists within the department. Um, With that as a kind of background and starting point, I gather the idea is, well, maybe even though they did that, they complied with that part of the consent decree, maybe not enough yet. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, that's, and that was really the piece is where uh, the second day in particular where we brought in um, specialists from all over the country to really see if we could get our arms wrapped around how we could improve uh, wellness within the department. So day one was really cool. We had some incredibly great speakers. We had people coming in who had this experience, and the room was filled with uh, CPD uh, brass as well as officers. So there were officers from various districts. I think every district was represented with a few officers. So it was really kind of an intro to, um, and I think it was great on, on uh, the superintendent's part. He wanted to make sure officers are aware that he and his leadership team is aware that this is a big problem. And it is about working better with our communities, but it's also about making sure we're well enough to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Did did the the superintendent uh, attend? Yes, he attended. He was there all of day or most of day one. And then he came back at the end of day two. And on the end of day two, we also had uh, the new mayor at the time, uh, Mayor Lightfoot, came in and uh, we presented a lot of different things that we came up with, with initiatives that we think that would help move employee wellness specifically, both both sworn and civilian, but really highlighting the sworn component um, of wellness. And yeah. so that really shows really, a level of commitment to have both of the top officials, police and civilian government there. What were some of those initiatives? What did they look like? What was what was presented to them? So the first was we um, needed to further helping our those who help the officers. 
So as you, I don't know if you're aware, but for many, many years, Chicago Police Department had one psychologist, uh, Dr. Sobel, incredibly great guy. But one. But one, one for 13,000 sworn members. That's beyond crazy. <laughs> and if, <laughs> Not to put too I mean, fine a point on it, right. Yeah, I, I just leave it at that. That is, nobody in their right mind would think that that's enough to do anything. And this individual is supposed to not just look at the wellness of the organization as a whole. He's also supposed to be available for individuals who might need to seek uh, help one-on-one. Yeah. No, no, no. So, yeah, that's not cool. So what uh, one of the requirements of the consent decree agreement was that they would employ additional um, assistance in that arena. So we had just helped Chicago really push forward in hiring, and they had hired, I believe at the time, eight, and now they're up to 10 new uh, clinicians. And so we looked at what does a clinician need, because one of the things you have to be cautious of is the trauma that the clinicians are going to experience. So we needed to make sure, and that was one of the things a lot of organizations, um, just in general, don't really understand that type of an impact. So we looked at some of the initiatives for how do we get get our keep our clinicians healthy, which you know, giving them further opportunities for further education so they can get their PhDs, um, making sure that we're getting connected with outside uh, psychologists that can also help, mm-hmm. making sure that we have a pool of um, individuals that. Uh, you know, understand policing as well so they can understand what's going on. So that was one of the initiatives that we we put forward. And, you know, they're still in the review process right now. Some of the other initiatives are to update and expand our peer support teams. Those are one of the most highly acclaimed when you talk to officers across the country. Peer support makes peer a huge support. difference. Right, yeah. They mm-hmm. want to be able to come to people like them who understand their situation and can offer help or direct them to it. Yes, correct. And so oftentimes, if we have a, if an organization has a strong peer support, then they, and, and they're working hand in hand, when I say hand in hand, they have the internal ability to get them to somebody who, you know, maybe the psychologist or the clinician. Um, so we needed to connect all of that a little bit stronger than it was. Well, again, you have peer support out there, but if you don't have clinicians that are, can support the peer support, uh, that it it can sometimes become not it it becomes a, a program that doesn't get utilized very often because the peer support folks get overwhelmed as well. So one of the initiatives initiatives was to let's look at it, let's make sure we're getting our peer support folks the proper training so that they can get trained initially, but they can also have annual training that helps support them in their uh, quest to keep our officers healthy. So that was another one of the um, many. Initiatives. Another initiative, and I think this is the one that really is important and a lot of times often overlooked in at least the last five years, is support that can be offered to the families of the individuals. Ah. One of the things that my the officers have told me, um, and, and again, I was peer support member for 29 years in my department, um, prior department. And so I've, I've talked to a lot of officers who've gone through some pretty hellacious experiences in the field. And what we saw initially, let's take an officer-involved shooting, because I think that's one of the more biggest concerns that the communities yeah. have, mm-hmm. and it can be problematic for the officer, right? Mm-hmm. So historically, we'd send somebody after an incident, and we'd send them to the psych- psychologist within seven days, because um, people think that's important. But what we do know is the trauma doesn't usually manifest itself in anything that's um, damaging immediately. So what we were finding as officers were going, you know, six, seven months out is that's when they started struggling. But now uh-huh. there's no requirement to go see the psych. So now it's more of a stigma thing. Oh, you, di- you didn't handle your shooting very well, you know, type of a deal. Uh-huh. But they also said, this is, I think, really important for people to understand. Once the um, body, body camera video started to become released in most of the larger cities, mm-hmm. now it dragged in their family members. Oh. Something no one ever really paid attention to before. Mm-hmm. So before your significant other, your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you'd tell them about maybe what's going on, sort of prepare them in case there's something, because it was, came out and information would come out in print media only. Now they see it. See it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And there's no stopping it, as you know. That's of an course. unintended Social consequence. Social media. Right. Mm-hmm. 
so uh, it 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 has brought in a whole nother dynamic. And um, again, officers feel very responsible for whatever happens that they have their thumb on. <laughs> it, and I know people don't necessarily understand that, but they do. Nobody wants to come on the department and shoot somebody who has an unloaded weapon, for example. In or a person a with mental illness or something right, like that. Or a person with mental mm-hmm. illness. That's not what officers <laughs> hope to do in their career. <clears throat> but when it happens, you know, they're dealing with the psychological impacts of it, but they're also dealing with the social media scrutiny now. So again, if it was just them, it might be one thing, but then you add into the mix if they have children um, or even significant others, it becomes a much bigger psychological impact than tradition uh, would, you know, tradition held held before, before we had that type. So the families need care too. So as you you look out at the landscape, uh, having worked in Chicago, you work in Los Angeles, uh, you, you look over the country uh, what would you like to see happen in the next two, three, five years in this area of officer wellness and mental health uh, that might, we hope, would stem this uh, new spike in officer suicides as well as make officers and their communities better off and safer? Well, it's, it's sort of complex, but I'll just give you a couple of things that I think needs to happen. One, awareness. We do know whenever there's awareness, um, education, we see improvements. So awareness is important, but not just for the officer's sake. I think awareness in our communities, I think we need to get away from the us versus them thought process where officers mm-hmm. think they just have to go out there and, and crush crime. They have to understand when they crush crime that they're throwing a net out there and sometimes they're including other people in the mix that don't belong in that net. Yes. And I think our community members need to not see them as the robocop, the warrior mentality cop, um, and really understand that it's together, uh, that, that they're just as human as, as, the individu- as themselves. And I think that once you start to see people as human beings on both sides, I think that's huge. That's where we start making progress. I do think we need to be very cautious, especially in the larger cities and actually the smaller cities, um, the different types of barriers. There's pragmatic barriers um, to getting service. So officers, a lot of, especially in some agencies where they, what I say, they off it to external places, they don't always make it user-friendly. So, for example, mm-hmm. if I'm working midnight to 8, um, and that's kind of my shift, I need to be able to make my appointments super early in the morning or very late. And a lot of individuals out there who work in this um, arena, they have the kind of nine to four. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work with shift work yeah. workers. And that that's actually a barrier that a lot of officers have talked about. And then also making sure if you're either, if you have an internal program or you're doing an external where you're making referrals, that referrals are near where the officer's live so that they can have access to it for for easy access and then the third component is that to ensure their family members can participate in and a lot of a lot of programs they don't it's for the officer mm-hmm. only not for the family and i think those are really super important components and then i think we need to have a lot of training we cannot pretend this doesn't exist from right. the officer's perspective that's right we have to teach them on cues to look for we have to get them comfortable confronting their partners when they see something going bad. And I don't mean in a negative way, but in a helpful way. Yes. So those are so, those are some of the basics for the next, I think, will keep us busy for the next few years. <laughs> that is Sandy Jo MacArthur. She is a retired assistant chief from the Los Angeles Police Department, and she is now the mental health training coordinator for Los Angeles County Law Enforcement. Thank you very much for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. Thank you. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Lawyers Behaving Badly. Let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this is a judicial edition, which comes to us through the good efforts of alert listener Mike of Chicago, Illinois, 
and the Chicago Sun-Times, and it stars DuPage County, Illinois judge, I mean former judge, Patrick O'Shea. The saga of former Judge O'Shea begins back in 2016. It seems that his administrative assistant filed a sexual harassment complaint against him. Judge O'Shea's reaction? Why, he went to the administrative assistant's boss and complained to the boss about the assistant's, quote, gang-related tattoos and threatened to have her jailed. Yes, the next problem came when a deputy clerk also alleged that he sexually harassed her by making suggestive comments about her clothing. Judge Shea responded by filing a formal complaint against her. These allegations of retaliation and abuse were bad enough, but as they say on those late-night commercials, wait, there's more, and it's just as bad or worse. It seems that in 2017, Judge O'Shea, at home, fired his gun inside his apartment in suburban Wheaton, Illinois. The bullet went through the wall and into the next apartment. And this got Judge O'Shea a criminal charge of reckless conduct. Now, there was nothing illegal about the gun itself or about Judge O'Shea having a gun. But when your bullet finds its way into the neighboring dwelling of someone else, where there could be a situation where somebody could be, well, killed, well, yes, that is a problem and potentially a criminal offense. In 2018, Judge O'Shea went on trial on the reckless conduct charge, and he was found not guilty. The out-of-county judge who heard the case said that even if Judge O'Shea's actions were negligent, they did not rise to the level of criminal recklessness, which, as my students will tell you, requires evidence of conscious risk-taking, that is, awareness of a substantial and unjustifiable risk, and going ahead with the action anyway. So that was the end of it, right? Well, no, because during the investigation of that crime, Judge O'Shea told detectives that the hole in his apartment wall had been made by a screwdriver, or that the gun had been fired not by him, but his son. Actually, he told them both of those things, and other stories, too. According to the Sun-Times, Judge O'Shea allegedly told a whole series of lies about what really happened. Close quote. And that, dear listeners, finally got the attention of the judicial conduct authorities in Illinois once and for all. First, the state commission found O'Shea had retaliated against the two female employees who had filed harassment complaints against him, and his statement to the commission that he would change his behavior in the future did not indicate remorse. Quote, rather, it was because he believed his comments and actions were only misconstrued. Close quote. Far worse, however, were his lies to the police. Quoting here again, the respondent's response to the incident was unacceptable for an officer of the court, said the commission. The respondent's misconduct reflects poorly upon the integrity of and respect for the judiciary. According to the commission further, O'Shea, quote, was totally unapologetic with respect to that conduct. He lied under oath and abused his position of power. And with that, the commission removed O'Shea from the bench. He obviously is a person who should never serve as a judge again. Oh, wait, because there's more. There's this. While the allegations against Judge O'Shea were pending, the harassment, the retaliation against court employees, and the succession of lies to the police, all well-documented and out in public, Judge O'Shea faced a retention election in November of 2018. In retention elections in Illinois, a judge faces no opposition. The ballot asks voters, quote, shall this judge be retained in office for another term? To be retained, a judge must get 60% of the votes saying yes. And in that vote, with all that stuff out in public, DuPage County, Illinois voters chose to retain Judge O'Shea. They gave him 70% of their votes. 
it's enough to dampen one's faith in democracy. Or maybe DuPage County voters just prefer a lying judge. Or maybe too few of them paid any attention at all. The commission has saved them from Judge O'Shea. But what if the commission hadn't? That is Lawyers Behaving Badly Judicial Edition, and that's it for this episode at Criminal Injustice. Remember to subscribe to Criminal Injustice so that you can always get us in your favorite podcast app every time and never miss an episode or our news bonuses or another story of lawyers behaving badly. Remember, we're now listener-supported. Please go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson, and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice to become a member. Find past episodes, show notes, and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. When HIV appeared in the United States, it was a death sentence and a source of real fear. Now, with treatment, people living with the virus can live long and full lives. So why do laws still criminalize some actions of people living with HIV? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24/7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police fire EMTs, whatever you need, when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus with Simply Safe there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe, S I M P L I S A F E that's simplysafe.com/injustice